Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the same anti-immigrant playbook that has led to the rise of far-right parties in Italy, Sweden, Poland and Hungary being used by the Republicans who are equating Latino immigration with white replacement while blaming immigrants for crime and imaginary voter fraud. Joining us is an expert on domestic terrorism, Thomas Makaitis, and we will discuss the emergence of far-right vigilantes engaged in election intimidation in Arizona, Shasta County, California, and across the country, who are poised for greater violence and even civil war if the November 8 vote does not go their way. A professor of history at DePaul University, Tom Makaitis has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and we will discuss his article at The Hill, Populist Autocracy is Built Upon Fears of a New Demographic Order. Then with the House progressives in disarray over a letter to Biden that was sent then rescinded the next day, we'll examine how genuine concerns about the war in Ukraine escalating and the need for a peaceful solution can be achieved without playing into Putin's hands and selling out the embattled Ukrainians. Joining us is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Canadian Dam for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and he had a recent article in Foreign Affairs, The Crisis in Progressive Foreign Policy, How the Left Can Adapt to an Age of Great Power Rivalry. Then finally, we'll assess what the Biden administration can do in response to the insulting behavior of the Saudi crown prince, who is openly siding with Putin and clearly wants to help Trump return to the White House as he and Putin jack up the price of gas in the hope the American people will punish the Democrats in the upcoming elections. Joining us is Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. She has led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Thomas Makaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Populist Autocracy is Built Upon Fears of a New Demographic Order. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Makaitis. Thank you. So, Tom, your article talks about the threat from populist autocracies, and you've just had one get elected in Italy under Giorgio Maloney with a basically a fascist party that descends from uh, a descendant of uh, Mussolini. Even in their logo, they have M, meaning Mussolini, literally in the flames. I mean, that's just no question about where they're coming from. And God, Fatherland, Family is the mm-hmm. party slogan. you got the Swedish Democrats now being the kingmakers in the new government. In Sweden, in Poland, of course, you've always had, since 2015, this right-wing uh, government. 
and then in, in Hungary as well, we know all about Orban, and he's the hero of Tucker Carlson and the Trumpsters in this country. And, of course, there's virtually no immigration to Hungary, but still what all of these countries have in common, all these right-wing autocratic governments have in common, is they've been elected on fears of immigration. In Italy, of course, there's concerns about immigrants from Africa, many of whom drown on their way across the Mediterranean. In Sweden, they ran an anti-immigrant campaign, the Sweden Democrat Party. So let's talk about America, though, in that context. Mm-hmm. The Republicans, basically, their main campaign is about the border. That's what both Governor Abbott and, and Governor DeSantis of Florida are doing. You know, we're sending these immigrants on buses uh, and planes to so-called sanctuary states in the north is all playing to the base fear about immigration, and they've conflated now immigration with crime, suggesting that the crime wave in this country, not that it's real, uh, is caused by immigrants. And again, they keep stressing that the country's out of control and the southern border's out of control. So, And now you have these vigilantes that look like fascists, they look like brown shirts, mm-hmm. sitting there in front of drop boxes in largely Latino neighborhoods of Phoenix, Arizona, in uh, Maricopa County, and you've also got reports now in Northern California in Shasta County, which is a kind of Trump country in, in a blue state of California. Election workers are being intimidated there as well. So how would you describe the situation in America as in the context of what you've written about these autocratic governments emerging in Europe? Well, what, <clears throat> what you've said is a very nice summary, but there are two things I would add to it. One is immigration is funneled into this replacement theory. It's not just that immigrants are coming. It's this fear of the decline in the non-Hispanic white population and the threat perception that goes with that. Research from the University of Chicago showed the defining characteristic or the common denominator of people arrested for activity on January 6th is not their age, their income, but the fact that they live in a county which has experienced a relative decline of its non-white Hispanic population. The other thing to add to it, which is so pernicious, is the notion that there is no such thing as uh, objective reality. Truth is not what can be verified. Um, It's what the leader tells you truth is. So no matter how much evidence is presented or how little evidence they can present, they have been told that there's going to be widespread election fraud and that the the 2020 election was stolen. So therefore, they have had to organize themselves to prevent that happening. And they're impervious to any kind of external logic. Well, there are two scenarios here, possible scenarios, is that maybe then they complement each other in a way. Is it possible that we'll have more of an uptick in this vigilante activity going on at polling stations and drop boxes, as we've witnessed here in Arizona and in California. Will that intensify before the election? And then the other question would be, if the Democrats manage to squeak out a victory, either in the House or the Senate or both, then I imagine the same forces will double down on their election-denying uh, Stop the steel rants and be even more dangerous. So, are those scenarios possible here in the United States? I, I think they're not only pa- possible; they're highly likely. I expect intimidation and uh, the threat of violence to occur to increase not only at you know um, uh, up to the election, but election day itself in polling places and. Um, you know, uh, Western and Central Michigan is a concern. North and Central Wisconsin is a concern. Um, there are pockets, even downstate Illinois, there are pockets of this all over the country where there are concentrations of individuals. Now, I don't think they're the majority, but they're a sizable minority. And unfortunately, many of them are well-armed who have already decided that this threat exists. 
and who really essentially the, the narrative coming out of the Trump Republican Party, which that's becoming redundant, the Republican Party now is the party of Donald Trump, is that any election outcome that is not the one they want is by definition fraudulent. That's the characteristic, that's a defining characteristic of fascism, and it's not going to go away. So if their candidate doesn't win, the narrative is going to be the election was stolen. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to change that, except law enforcement is going to have to prepare for that. And it's, you know, it's, it's a disturbing and uh, very, very problematic trend. Well, there are members of the Arizona legislature that are encouraging these vigilantes to show up armed at these drop boxes in, in Maricopa County. Yep. But in a broader sense, Trump is also encouraging these people, isn't he, with the stop the steal lie mm -hmm. uh, and the lie that's now become a bedrock belief amongst Trump Republicans or MAGA Republicans is that he won the election that was stolen by Biden. So they're already, that's their mindset that you already have an illegitimate government in the office now. So if the Democrats were able to eke out a victory, then presumably that sentiment will be even more inflamed. Well, not just the legislators. There's this other movement going on across the United States called the Constitutional Sheriff's Movement, which essentially is, um, is a, comes to an English common law argument that the sheriff is the most important official because he could be she, but it's overwhelmingly he, is directly elected by the local voters, and they are ultimately answerable to him. And there's been an encouragement of these individuals to seize voting box, you know, voting ballot boxes and to intervene if there's a perceived threat. You've had, you know, at least one case of one of these sheriffs showing up at a meeting that was run by the Oath Keepers. Um, that's the other thing. There are, you know, that was going on in Arizona. There's a direct link to these vigilante groups and the local chapter of the Oath Keepers, a very heavily armed militia, that in fact um, is behind this intimidation. And the scary thing about the Oath Keepers is, you know, the the leak, the report, the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, released a couple of weeks ago, has the numbers in the neighborhood of 38,000. That is more people than all but a handful of Nash, state national guards. I mean, that's that's a, you know that's an army corps. That's an incredibly large number. Now they're scattered all over. The numbers are not you know hard and fast, but it's a sobering realization. And that's just one group. They're the three percenters. There are the Proud Boys. There are all these others, and they are now forming a synergy with. Republican politicians, not the majority, I'm not saying that, but with enough of them that they're taking encouragement from that. Stuart Rhodes is not really even apologizing for January 6th. He's mounting an affirmative defense. This is the founder of the Oath Keepers, arguing that he was acting on, on Trump's call and waiting for, the, for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, in which case his followers would then march into Washington to, to support the president. So can you make the case that if the Republicans win a little over a week from now, mm -hmm. they will usher in a, a fascist government? I mean, the article at The Hill, Tom McCartis, already points out that Trump is borrowing a page from the Hungarian demagogue Orban's book that he's going to issue Schedule F which is an executive order that means that all the executive branch employees can be fired by the president of the United States. And Trump will have a compliant civil service along with an ultra-conservative court. Yeah. And of course, if the Republicans take over in a little over a week, at least in the House and, and certainly in the Senate, then Biden's attempt to reconfigure the judiciary, not that, you know, it's an uphill climb because of what Leonard Leo has done already, stacking the judiciary with far-right judges, that'll be stopped in its tracks. So, yeah, that's true. Um, I'm sorry, I think what you've said is essentially correct. I don't think we're at the point of fascism. I don't want to be alarmist about that. I'm trying to alert people to the risks that are inherent in the direction they're going. What we will get if the Republicans take control of the House, and definitely if they get the Senate as well, 
is gridlocked for two more years and then a very vicious campaign in 2024. Very little will be able to get will be get done. If the Democrats hold on to the Senate, then the judicial nominations are still uh, are still possible because, of course, the Senate is responsible for that, and the president and the Democrats control the White House. What I don't I don't see us tottering on the edge just yet. But I think the next two elections are absolutely crucial. If Trump were to return to power in 2024, with schedule. F, and with all the things he learned, and with this concerted effort all over the rest of the country to, you know, in, in decidedly red areas, for legislators to make it harder to vote, to give them the right to intervene in elections, possibly even to choose the electors. You know, we're, we're in for a very, very rough ride. And the threat of violence, I mean, the article in The Guardian on Shasta County said, we're peaceful people, but we're not going to be peaceful much longer. And strangely, there, there's very little concrete um, that they can point to that the government's doing to them. I mean, the mask mandate's over. Nobody's making anybody get shots. And the most bizarre thing of all in the steel campaign, the steel argument, is if the Democrats stole the presidential election, why didn't they do a better job of stealing the down-ballot races? I mean, it would have been if they had this, you know, conspiracy in place that they could uh, prevent Trump getting elected. Well, certainly they could have put in more, uh, you know, Democratic governors and they could have made the Senate uh, more strongly Democratic instead of 50-50. It just is, it falls apart of its own absurdity. But when you are impervious to logic because you get all of your information from echo chambers, um, you know, having a trying to persuade just is not very effective. So just in closing then, Tom McIntyre, what can, you know, sensible American citizens, I don't know what the percentage is of people that have become a part of the idiocracies as opposed to those that are, that are still sane, yep. but what can uh, sane Americans do? Well, again, turning to the Italian ele- election, the lesson is writ large there. Uh, Mal- uh, Maloney was elected on a very, at a very low turnout election by Italian standards. So get out to vote, vote early, um, uh, you know, vote, you know, vote on person if you must, vote, uh, vote by mail if you can. But it's, this election is going to be decided by turnout. Um, and the, all the indicators are it's going to be one of the largest turnouts um, that we've ever seen. I mean, by European standards, our turnouts are never terribly high, but they're talking over 70%. Um, so get informed, vote, um, you know, uh, help get other people to the polls, volunteer to be a poll watcher, an election judge, um, you know, do whatever you can to support the candidate you want. That's how democracy works. Well, I thank you for joining us. Um, as an expert on terrorism, it's extraordinary to think we're having this conversation, Tom, where we're worried about domestic terrorism in this country impacting a democratic election, but uh, it's already starting to happen and it could get worse. Yeah, um, sad but true. I, I find myself frequently disliking my conclusions, but but again, I don't, I'm not prepared to give up and nobody should be because this is, there's a risk, it's not a certainty, it's not yet even a likelihood, but it certainly is a wake up call. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Makaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Populous Autocracy is Built Upon Fears of a New Demographic Order. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining how genuine concerns about the war in Ukraine escalating and the need for a peaceful solution can be achieved without playing into Putin's hands and selling out the embattled Ukrainians. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow, the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. And he had a recent article at Foreign Affairs, The Crisis in Progressive Foreign Policy, How the Left Can Adapt to an Age of Great Power Rivalry. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wertheim. My pleasure to be back. Always good to speak with you. Well, thanks, Stephen. And even though your article was back in August, it seems to be very relevant uh, now, the crisis in progressive foreign policy, given the House Progressive Caucus's letter sent to Biden, uh, which was withdrawn the next day. And a lot of the signatories were very upset that it was sent in the first place. And we still don't quite know why and how it happened. But it's a bit of an embarrassment, certainly to the, the House Progressive Caucus. But I've never understood why it is that you can't have on the left in this country, you can't be an idealist on domestic issues at the same time a realist on foreign policy. What, what's the problem there? Well, I confess I don't understand that either. But, you know, I do think to be fair to uh, some of my friends and colleagues on the left, uh, I do think there's a good deal of realism there, but there also does appear to be a tendency to imbibe the view that the United States should ambitiously try to remake the world. And sometimes, and I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought out this tendency, there's a, a kind of strong moral fervor uh, which is completely understandable, right, given how Russia has conducted itself. Uh, and that can lead to, uh, just as it does, you know, in the center or on the on the right, it can lead to uh, uh, difficulty in thinking soberly about our different courses of action that are available to us and the kinds of consequences that would that would uh, come from our our choices, especially given that we're unfortunately dealing with, a country in Russia that's, a, frankly, a nuclear peer to the United States. Well, you can't fault people, though, Stephen, for being concerned about World War Three, and nobody wants this thing to escalate out of hand. And some of the voices that I've had on my program, like uh, George Beebe from the Quincy Institute, who was a former top CIA analyst on Russia, and Chris Shivas the National Intelligence Officer for Europe, they're all concerned about an end game. It's a valid concern. So how do you navigate with the, the genuine concerns that people have for peace, finding peace, even at the same time when you essentially have a, a fascist dictator in Russia running amok? Well, I think we're seeing the Biden administration trying to navigate exactly this tension. It's it's not easy and we don't know how things will turn out. But as of now, you know, if we stop history here, I have to say that the Biden administration has done quite well in providing Ukraine with the means to defend itself. Ukraine has been extremely successful in repelling uh, Russia's uh, ambitious assault meant to allow it to topple the government of Ukraine and, and dictate Ukraine's foreign policy. That doesn't mean that Russia has been exactly defeated on the battlefield. It, it hasn't, and it might not be fully defeated. Uh, and then we have to even consider whether it could be, if Ukrainians were in a position to be fully defeated, what kind of escalation risks that might open up, potentially uh, nuclear risks. So it's a very difficult situation. I think, frankly, some people who are often opposed to mainstream foreign policy in the United States, and I'm often one of those people, depending on the issue, are trying to sometimes they're looking for ways that, to say the Biden administration is really screwing up here. But but in fact, uh, you know, very few people actually want to do something dramatically different, like withhold aid to the Ukrainians or go around the Ukrainians to try to reach a final agreement with Russia and then impose it on Ukrainians. So I think there's a lot of misreadings. And in the case of this letter that the House Progressive Caucus put out and then quickly retracted, 
you know, I I believe that the latter is very, very close to the Biden administration's own position, which has always been throughout the war that uh, the United States seeks to strengthen Ukraine's hand on the battlefield in preparation for uh, a negotiated ceasefire or settlement to the war. And that remains an objective of the administration. And the letter, though it was not well executed and should have been rewritten and had some outdated information, it mostly just emphasized that aspect of the Biden administration's objectives. And uh, unfortunately, the Washington Post, sorry to get into the weeds here, but this has become a Warshock test for, for people. So it's a little important to understand how things unfolded. But um, the Washington Post initially reported this letter as uh, calling for a, a dramatic shift from the Biden administration's foreign policy. And I think that led some people to think that it really was doing that and then to try to read, well, what could that dramatic shift possibly be when you read the text of the of the letter? So it's been a really uh, unfortunate episode. The letter, to be clear, is more ambiguous and not up to date than it should be and shouldn't have gone out in this fashion. And then it appears that uh, members of Congress were not even consulted that it was about to go out when it did. Uh, so it's been really badly handled and it's unfortunate. Uh, but at the same time, if you uh, if you read the text of the letter, it, it doesn't uh, clearly doesn't do some of the things that some people claim that it does, like, you know, blame the West for the war. No, it clearly blames Russia. It uh, also simply calls for some diplomacy between the United States and Russia uh, to address, you know, how an eventual ceasefire might be reached. That's what it says. And then some people are claiming that, well, in fact, the letter says that Biden and Putin should sit down, carve up Ukraine, and then impose that settlement on the Ukrainians, which is ruled out by the letter, uh, which says nothing should be done about Ukraine without Ukraine. So, you mean, the thing is spun to the point where the signatories themselves got nervous and they didn't want to be associated with the Tucker Carlson's and that group of Republicans and even Kevin McCarthy, who said that he doesn't want to give Ukraine a blank check. And there's a great deal of concern that if the Republicans win in less than two weeks and, and certainly take the House, they could block funds, even though polls tell us that 85 percent of the American people support the U.S. arming Ukraine to defend itself. So is that what happened there, Stephen, that uh, the signatories themselves got nervous because of the spin from the Washington Post mischaracterizing the letter and they didn't want to give aid and comfort to the Tucker Carlson's of the world? Yeah, I think with an election nearing, they didn't want to appear uh, to be aligning with with. Uh, part of the Republican Party, though I think, as you alluded to, it's actually a very small part of the Republican Party. Uh, but the letter itself was very hard to defend because it apparently had been written over the summer and it just did not contain up-to-date information on the war. And some of its arguments reflected the fact that uh, it didn't account for Ukrainian successes on the battlefield uh, in the intervening months. So it's very hard to defend this letter as it went out. So clearly, I you know, I actually think it was the right thing to retract the letter, uh, but then there was this kind of pile on and a suggestion that the letter reflected a, a point of view that I don't think that the text, uh, as bad as it was, didn't actually have. Just to pull back though and, and comment on the general phenomenon, I think we really fear ourselves to a surprising degree. When Leader McCarthy says that there shouldn't be a blank check for Ukraine. Frankly, what does that mean in substance? The Biden administration isn't giving a blank check for Ukraine. It routinely has refused to provide certain weapon systems that Kiev requests. It it declined to set up a no-fly zone earlier in the war when uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was, was touting uh, that idea. So there isn't a blank check. And as you say, the support for continued support for Ukraine is pretty robust in the public. So I have a hard time imagining that the Congress will change so profoundly that somehow the United States will move to a you know completely neutral posture in the war as a result. It's, it's very hard to see that coming from even the Republican Party, you know, despite the existence of Tucker Carlson and, and people like that. 
But in terms of the people that I mentioned that I've spoken to, George Beebe and Chris Shivers and others that are concerned of this thing spiralling out of control and they want to find some kind of end game, it's obviously not easy. Putin made a long rambling speech today before the Valde discussion club, basically just reiterating all of his grievances about the West. Is the only solution here going to come from inside the Kremlin itself to find a way to remove him? Assuming that the Ukrainians take Kherson, I mean, the reason I think that Putin is keep signaling about nuclear weapons and dirty bombs as a way to make the West nervous threatening a nuclear war while he's losing a conventional war. And if he loses her son, and if, particularly if he blows up the dam in vengeance, it's going to be uh, ugly. But at the same time, the reports you get is that from uh, the Russian military and those that leak stuff that's going on, they're in a real crisis. I mean, the, the mercenaries are at, at war Prigozhin and Hadirov, the Chechen warlord, they're at war with the Russian military itself. So there's massive problems on the Russian side uh, which don't seem to be able to be resolved. So it's, it would seem that Putin's going to lose this war. Well, I think in a sense he's already lost the war. His initial aim of uh, changing the regime has uh, failed and I don't see many prospects for reviving that aim. Now he's shifted aims and made his problem even worse for himself by declaring the annexation of four areas of Ukraine on top of Crimea from 2014 that Russia didn't even occupy militarily at the time of the declaration. And now it's been rolled back further. Uh, and so, you know, is, can he really claim a victory? I mean, I, before that point, it might have been possible for him to recalculate and try to say, well, look, we achieved some important goals here and I'm, I'm done with this war. Uh, now, I, it's much more difficult for him to do that. Um, and so, look, I think, you know, both sides in the war are not close to wanting to settle this war, understandably so. And that's the most important thing, whether the United States uh, and, and other outside powers, you know, uh, lean on Kiev or Moscow or not, it really does take uh, both sides to align in thinking that, um, you know, they will lose more from continuing the fight than they will from gaining it. And a lot of experience shows that countries Unless the war ends very quickly, wars tend to go on for a long time because both sides find reasons to think that time is on their side. I think that's what we see right now. Um, unfortunately, though, I still don't think, despite all the problems on the Russian side, to leap from those problems to the prospect of uh, ousting Putin, uh, I think is a big leap. I just don't see much evidence to suggest that there's a, a challenger in the wings and Putin's rule himself is is unstable. So I think if we're waiting to deal with a with Russia and find a, an end to the conflict, uh, if we're waiting for Putin to pass from the scene, we may be waiting for uh, for a very, very long time. But just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Stephen, the prospect of Putin winning this war is quite alarming, given who he is and what he's doing, and that would permanently destabilize Europe. And also, at the end of the day, as I think it was John McCain who described Russia as a, a gas station with nuclear weapons, if you were to burn all the oil and gas, which is the main uh, export of Russia, that would be the end of the planet. It's the same with Saudi Arabia. And, Needless to say, there's obviously an alliance between Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the Saudi crown prince, and Putin, both of whom want Trump to come back and uh, jacking up the price of oil so that gas at the pump is going to hurt the Democrats uh, in this upcoming election. So the real lesson here is to get off the drug, right, to get off oil and gas. I'm not sure this is being learned because people are now clamoring to find more oil and gas. Oh, I love that lesson, and I agree with you that uh, that doesn't seem to be the the near-term lesson. 
you know, uh, there's a kind of optimistic future you might imagine that, you know, this war is, has taught us something about the dangers of kleptocracy, of dirty, unregulated money circulating around, that it turns out when we have the political will, we can, we can actually act on it. Uh, and likewise about energy, that uh, our dependence on uh, fossil fuels not only is bad for the planet, but uh, doesn't make for uh, sound geopolitics. But if those lessons are actually going to come to pass, it's going to take uh, a while longer because we've also learned the lesson that in the short term, people's needs for energy that's affordable are very real. Um, and, you know, I think there is a, a way of looking at uh, the, some of the Biden administration's climate initiatives through the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, in which it's found, I think, a politically appealing way to um, to make investments in renewable energies and the green transition, while also making sure it doesn't come at the expense of of ordinary people's uh, livelihoods. And that's a potentially sound basis for moving forward. In other words, we're not trying to shut down uh, fossil fuels immediately, but we are subsidizing heavily green energy so that in the end, green energy wins out. I think that's a sound approach, but uh, but again, it's hard to say at this point how the the war itself is is ultimately going to affect the green transition. And there is a danger, I think, that it could actually reaffirm the utility of, of fossil fuels. I think Germany is now putting uh, coal plants back into production, which is a remarkable thing in, in 2022. Well, Stephen Wertheim, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim as a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. And he had a recent article at Foreign Affairs, The Crisis in Progressive Foreign Policy, How the Left Can Adapt to an Age of Great Power Rivalry. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing what the Biden administration can do in response to the insulting behavior of the Saudi crown prince, who is openly siding with Putin and clearly wants to help Trump return to the White House as he and Putin jack up the price of gas in the hope the American people will punish the Democrats in the upcoming elections. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Sarah Lee Whitson, who is the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. And she was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. And she's led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's increasing evidence that, in effect, Putin and Mohammed bin Salman are colluding to help bring back Trump and to hurt Biden and the Democrats ahead of the election in less than two weeks' time. So what is your sense of why the U.S. is not taking a stronger stand? There have been some noises from a number of senators who are outraged by Saudi Arabia's act, but Biden himself was clearly ill-advised to go on that trip, which many people told him not to do. And we're learning now from the New York Times that Two members of the National Security Council, Brett McKirk and Amos Hoshin, went to Saudi Arabia, met with MBS to lay the groundwork for that meeting. MBS promised to pump more oil in order to lower the price of gas at the pump. Uh, and then once he got his fist bump, he stiffed Biden 
uh, and humiliated him. So why is the Biden administration not reacting in a stronger manner? Um, well, it's complicated. Um, first of all, I think that the reason why uh, Mohammed bin Salman um, broke his commitment to the Biden administration to increase oil output is because he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, and he wanted two things from the Biden administration. Number one, he wanted the Justice Department to suggest immunity uh, for him uh, in the lawsuits pending against him, including the lawsuit of my organization uh, against him for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the founder of our organization. And that wasn't delivered. Uh, and uh, he wanted, just as he wants, a bilateral written security agreement uh, that rises to a NATO-like uh, security promise from the United States. Biden didn't deliver that uh, either, uh, neither to him nor to the UAE. So I think you can see uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, now responding uh, to uh, not getting what he wants in this abrupt way, in this way that clearly surprised the Biden administration, uh, in a way that seems uh, designed to influence the upcoming midterm elections by uh, elevating uh, the cost of fuel uh, in the United States. Um, it, it, it fits together when you see that from the context of uh, um, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE flexing. They're flexing their muscles uh, towards the United States in terms of showing uh, uh, the Biden administration or any U.S. government, frankly, that they can impose costs and punishments if we don't do what they want. Um, and they're flexing specifically by showing that they can interfere and influence American elections and American election outcomes uh, if they choose to do so. And they are choosing to do so. So it is, I think, a, a, a dramatic, uh, uh, unprecedented, quite naked uh, exercise of power by Saudi Arabia, but also by the UAE in a way that we haven't quite seen before. Well, it makes you wonder who's the superpower here. I mean, MBZ uh, of the UAE is, was just in Moscow singing Putin's praises in the middle of this hideous war that Putin is prosecuting in Ukraine and threatening to use nuclear weapons. Just this week, Jared Kushner had a front row seat at an investor meeting in uh, Riyadh. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, soon to be king of Saudi Arabia, has, wow. making fun of Biden, he mocks him in private and laughs about his gaffes and questions his mental capacity. It's no secret that he prefers uh, Donald Trump, as does uh, Putin and MBZ. And of course, this weekend, uh, Trump is hosting uh, the Saudi-backed rival to the PGA Tour at his golf course in Scotland. So the writing's on the wall about what Putin's priorities are and what MBSs are. So, I mean, I guess from your point of view, it's a good thing that Biden didn't cave in on MBS's request to drop your lawsuit. I mean, they did. It looks like the US caved on the uh, Saad El Jabri uh, case in London. He's a former Saudi intelligence official who the same killer team that uh, killed and dismembered Ashoji. They went to Toronto to kill him, the Tiger Squad, and he sued. So from your point of view, Sarah Lee Whitson, at least Biden stood by your organization, Dawn. Well, um, I, I, I don't think that um, this was a political choice that Biden was making per se. Uh, uh, the uh, State Department uh, and the Justice Department very rarely weigh in to make a suggestion of immunity because it has tremendous precedent um, and it has tremendous force. No, uh, it virtually never uh, has a court proceeded uh, with, to exercise jurisdiction against an individual whom the State Department has said uh, should be immune. Um, you'll note that uh, the Trump administration didn't make suggestion of immunity for Mohammed bin Salman, even though it could have, uh, on its way out. 
Uh, I believe they were holding that out uh, as a political lever in order to push Mohammed bin Salman to first normalize with Israel. Um, I believe uh, that the Biden administration did not make a suggestion of immunity uh, because they very clearly understood that he was not entitled to that under the law. As crown prince, uh, there really was no basis to say that he should be immune from prosecution because under Saudi law, he's not head of state and he's not head of government. Um, what Mohammed bin Salman wanted the Biden administration to do is to politicize our judiciary, to interfere in our judicial system, just the way uh, he interferes in uh, the judiciary of Saudi Arabia and just the way there are kangaroo courts and dictatorships around the world. So, yes, kudos to the Biden administration for not caving into that pressure. Um, but there's also no legal basis for it. So they really just did the, the right thing in terms of protecting U.S. law, uh, protecting uh, U.S. democracy, protecting the independence of the U.S. judiciary. That may change now because uh, because the Biden administration, uh, by the November two, I'm sorry, October two deadline that the court had asked, did not give him immunity. The the, the Mohammed bin Salman was forced uh, to come up with this immunity ploy to have a royal decree appointing him prime minister. So now they've gone to the court to say, well, now I'm prime minister court and Biden administration. You must now recognize me as head of government. Whether that will change the Biden administration's assessment, uh, whether that will change the court's assessment, um, we don't know. Uh, we certainly hope not. And we're arguing that this bogus appointment uh, changes nothing under Saudi law and, and the king remains head of state and head of government. But but we'll see. Well, this the fist bump seen around the world, which was ended up being humiliation for Biden since he got stiffed by MBS over the oil prices which are affecting the electorate and may affect the, the results of this upcoming election. He was advised against it from a number of quarters and a lot of people are blaming Brett McGurk and, and Amos Hostin for setting Biden up for humiliation. But he, he himself, Biden, said that the trip was not about oil, it was about Middle East peace. So is there, I mean it's hard for me to believe that the United States sees of the priority of Israel making some kind of a deal with Saudi Arabia and vice versa is more important than the survival of the Biden administration and the Democrats. Is that possibly what happened? Did the Israelis really talk the Biden administration into going on this ill-fated trip? I think it was a combination of reasons. I think that this uh, normalization uh, with Israel is something that the Biden administration very much wanted to gift Israel and to gift the Israel lobby as a demonstration, as a show of their loyalty and commitment uh, to Israel and the Israel lobby. And, and indeed, they have continued to elevate uh, Israel's normalization with Arab states as a top U.S. priority, which is puzzling. Uh, it's not like these uh, dictatorships uh, uh, or Israel need a push or incentive from the United States uh, to uh, uh, make public their pre-existing uh, machinations uh, and alliance. Um, but it is something that our government, uh, Biden administration, the, the Trump administration, Republican and Democrat across the board in Congress have swallowed uh, hook, line and sinker. Um, uh, but the second motivation was indeed hoping that they would have a package deal, right? This is the way that the Saudis operate. They wanted a package deal. Uh, we'll promise normalization with Israel. We'll uh, increase oil production. In return, you give us immunity and you give us a security guarantee. And this notion of a bilateral NATO level security guarantee is something that both the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been very open about demanding. And so they weren't satisfied with the air force, air security umbrella that the U.S. was offering. Uh, uh, that wasn't quite uh, a, a level of guarantee that they wanted. Um, and so they didn't get what they wanted. Um, and they didn't give what was wanted of them. I, I think it's really important to see that as um, this kind of uh, uh, swapping uh, bazaar of, of exchange of interests um, which, of course, has nothing to do with the interests of the American people, 
uh, uh, um, much less the, the interests of uh, the people in the region who are impacted by this. I think one other important difference now in terms of seeing this extra muscle flex by Saudi Arabia, by UAE, as I've noted, I think, uh, earlier to you, is that they are now effectively operating like a block. They're making their demands as a block. Uh, and so when the European Parliament issues a resolution criticizing the UAE, it's Israel and Egypt's ambassadors, diplomats who go and complain to the EU. Uh, when the U.S. Uh, threatens to cut military aid to Egypt, it's Israel who goes and lobbies on their behalf uh, in Washington. They have each other's backs now. Uh, and uh, I think they're uh, beginning to believe that as a bloc, uh, they are less in a subservient position to the U.S., less uh, 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 number two in the power rankings versus the United States. Uh, and because our government, our administration is so inherently compromised, uh, um, they bow, they cave time and time and time again. They have short term interests tethered to the midterm elections. They have their own future careers to think about. When you look and see how many people in the Biden administration are probably going to end up in jobs working for their Gulf clients, for their Gulf masters uh, or the defense industries. Uh, it's pretty easy to understand why the Biden administration has been so pathetic in its response, punting to Congress to take a response to uh, this uh, Saudi treachery instead of making the decisions themselves. If, if President Biden wanted to halt arms sales uh, to Saudi Arabia, he can do that with the sign of a pen. He doesn't need Congress's permission. He doesn't need Congress's authorization. That's up to him to decide. Well, you've spent a career in human rights, Sarah Lee Whitson, and clearly the Israelis have abandoned any concept of human rights with this realpolitik deal that you've just outlined with Egypt, which is run by a murderous dictator, Saudi Arabia, which is run by a psychotic murderous dictator. They're not supporting Zelensky in Ukraine, the Israelis, even though he's Jewish and is furious with them because Russia is murdering his people and in the most horrendous abuse of human rights imaginable going on in that country. Now we have in Saudi Arabia, of course, the three tribesmen sentenced to death for resisting the displacement of their tribe, forcibly removed to make way for MBS's dream city, the $500 billion vanity project of his. And then the Saudis just arrested an American, Saad Ibrahim al-Mahdi, uh, he was sentenced to 16 years in prison for some tweets he had on, on Twitter some time back that were critical of the government, or even mildly critical of the Saudi government. He's going to die in jail. He's an elderly man. What's the status of our stance on human rights in terms of uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel? Uh, I think our stance is to keep our head down and look the other way. It's um, really unbelievable when you compare the sanctions that the U.S. government has imposed just yesterday on Iranian judges, on Iranian prison wardens, on Iranian security guards um, because of the violent crackdown on protesters in that country, because of the mistreatment of civil society activists in that country. Um, when you compare that to the absolute near total silence or even worse, deference uh, to Israeli investigations and so forth, to very similar, uh, if not worse, abuses by the Israelis or the Saudis. It's just embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing. And unfortunately, it uh, makes tools uh, uh, of sanctions, Treasury sanctions, Magnitsky sanctions, and so forth. It undermines any value they have by turning them into naked political cudgels that are untethered from the principles they're supposed to stand for, uh, the principled uh, circumstances in which they are meant to be exercised in cases of gross violations of human rights. Um, that the Israelis could assassinate an American Palestinian journalist uh, uh, with an Israeli bullet standing amid a scrum of journalists wearing a, a vest, a, a bulletproof vest marked press with a helmet on her head, finding the very little opening uh, uh, just underneath the helmet uh, to murder her and for the Biden administration to say nothing and to defer to the Israelis. I mean, 
clearly they are prioritizing the interests of their relationship with Israel over the interests, the rights, the life of Americans. Well, just in closing, Sarah Lee Whitson, we know that Mohammed bin Salman has been brutal in his takeover and imprisoned and confiscated the fortunes of of any possible rival, including the original crown prince. After all, he was the uh, MBS was the deputy crown prince, and Trump helped elevate him over Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, who um, Washington clearly preferred. Given that he is completely medieval in his behaviour, and it's a medieval regime. Is there any possibility that he will go the way of medieval tyrants uh, <laughs> and get assassinated? Well, um, very interestingly, you will find that uh, Mohammed bin Salman's doctors uh, apparently, reportedly, instructed him not to travel uh, because of a mysterious ailment he has uh, to go to Algeria to go to a meeting of uh, Arab ministers. Uh, analysts observing this were speculating, and of course this is speculation, that the real disease he had was kuwaitis. Uh, he was very afraid um, that there would be a move against him, a coup plot against him, particularly because of the extent to which he has disrupted yet again the relationship with the United States, uh, particularly because uh, many Saudi elites, many Saudi military leaders understand very, very clearly, uh, as President Trump told the whole world, uh, that Saudi Arabia's security, Saudi Arabia's very independence uh, as a state uh, depends on U.S. security, depends on the presence and support of U.S. forces. So it is, it is uh, uh, quite uh, interesting that he uh, has chosen now not to travel at this particularly critical moment. That being said, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has very ruthlessly but very effectively uh, eviscerated any body of independent authority in the country. Um, the business community has been sidelined. The religious community has been sidelined. Uh, civil society has been sidelined. Thousands of Saudi royals, Saudi elites are travel banned, can't leave the country. The wealthiest, most powerful people in the country have, had, have been stripped of their assets uh, and live under total surveillance in many cases, uh, if not jailed, wearing ankle monitors. And, and we're talking about billionaires of the country, industry leaders, business leaders. So his current power in the country uh, is pretty absolute in an unprecedented way for Saudi Arabia. Well, Charlie Winston, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who is the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. She was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. And she's led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on the issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers and political rights. And she joined us from the UK. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half